0: You're listening to ABC News Radio.
1: Welcome to the Weekly Post, where we take a look back at some of the stories which made the news this week. Hello, I'm Anna Pykett. First, some headlines. The federal government passes its $158 billion tax cut package.
2: Over
3: 10 million Australians will receive up to $1,080 and that will be of, of great use to them and it will also be of great help to
4: the Australian economy.
1: The Prime Minister meets with the opposition to discuss a new Religious Discrimination Act.
4: I do believe it's a pressing issue to protect Australia's right to religious freedom. This is something that we will pursue through legislation by the end of this year and at the right time. the Attorney General will uh, obviously explain all of uh, the ins and outs of what we're proposing to do.
1: And scientists in Adelaide say SA's Kangaroo Island could hold the key to saving declining population numbers.
2: Kangaroo Island um, was an introduced population of koalas, and they're isolated and they're (laughs) commedia-free.
1: That and more coming up on this edition of the Weekly Post. It's been a big week of economic news with the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates to a record low of 1% and the federal government's tax cut legislation being passed by Parliament. The tax cut package means 10 million Australians will receive up to $1,000 from next week, with the government hoping most spend it. But will the tax cuts and RBA interest rate be enough to kickstart the economy? News radio Sandy Aloisi spoke to Evan Lucas, the chief market strategist at InvestSmart.
5: You provide. it's just a question of how fast and that's probably the argument that comes out of all this it's we need the stimulus here and now rather than interest rate cuts first and foremost they are the slowest out of all of this so they take a long time to really hit the economy and actually move it it takes normally between 12 to 18 months to really see the overall effect of, of one rate cut so we've had two in two months it will provide a little bit of relief to those particularly with with any form of, of debt, whether that's a mortgage or a personal loan, et cetera. But it does take time. Tax cuts are faster. But, again, the argument is, is the speed at which the Stage 1, 2 and 3 are coming into it are, again, too slow. Now, tax cuts are better for consumption because you can actually physically feel and see a tax cut when you get a tax return like what's coming up in Stage 1. Um, but, again, there is a, a very good argument that the opposition is making that Stage 2 should come forward. And the reason I say that is the budget, when we got the update in May said that for FY19 we were still in deficit. What you will probably actually see at the MAIFO in December is that we're actually in surplus and the reason for that is that the other economic news this week is that if we look at our trade balance we hit another record month $5.46 billion in our trade surplus. We are on track for our first current account surplus since 1972 yeah. and that in itself is other interesting part of it. The government does actually have the ability to probably bring forward something, whether it's stage two is a different story, but they do have the ability to stimulate further, harder to here and now because that is where the economy is suffering. Consumption is low, there is no doubt about that, and private investment is going backwards, and that's the other part of this. It's not just government spending. Private investment is the real drag here.
2: What is your assessment of why Australians have been so reluctant to spend their money?
5: There's a whole range of things. You can't go past that globally. There are other factors at play. So you do see, particularly the US China trade issue, that isn't actually coming through in physical numbers. What is coming through is confidence is being severely impacted, and particularly business confidence. So they are not spending, they're not investing for the future. And that gets down to whether the the question really comes around is that, again, the other part of this is it means if businesses aren't spending, the idea of actually employing people gets lower, so your ability to actually feel confident in your job drops away as well, and that therefore stops your consumption. So it's, it's a bit of a more of a survey thing and therefore a future expectation, rather than anything actual, tangible, and physical numbers yet. But that is where it's coming from, and that's where you can see most of the data pointing to is that we are slightly nervous. Now, the interesting thing about that also, and getting back to my answer around the reason we are in surplus, employment growth in this country is booming. You can't deny that. There is no doubt that our employment numbers are moving very strongly, Female participation in the employment market is at the highest it's ever been. We've seen participation across the board at levels we haven't seen for over two decades. The consistency about that is that because there are more people coming back into the market to work and although we've got the employment growth, it's almost like one for one. Somebody finds a job, but somebody comes back into the employment market and therefore it doesn't move the unemployment rate because they are unemployed Mm. equals the one we got into it. But it means more people are taking tax home to the government and that's why we're also likely in service. The amount of employed people over the last 18 months particularly will mean that they've also seen a big, big jump in the bottom line of the government.
2: And is a factor also the lack of wage increases that Australians have been getting recently?
5: Partly. I mean, the other thing about all of that, it's certainly there. If we look globally again, wage increases have been pretty sluggish across the board. Um, and, And yes, it is part of it. And the reason is the employment numbers again is the, what we call the slack, so those that are underemployed or underutilized, where they want to work more or have to work more to actually get the kind of take-home pay they expect, that is driving wages at a flat line because there isn't enough pressure to actually push wages up. Uh, and, and that's all part of it. So we're only growing at about 2.1%, 2.3% on wages, which is, you know, if you put inflation in there, it's really seeing we're growing about 04 06 of 1%. Mm. So wages are a problem. But that, again, gets down to this overall conundrum, which is particularly what the RBA is worried about at the moment, is that we just have so much slack in the employment market, it's just not driving wages
1: higher. And that was Chief Market Strategist at InvestSmart, Evan Lucas, speaking to NewsRadio's Sandy Aloisi. This week, New South Wales police carried out counter-terrorism raids in Sydney, in which three people were arrested. One of the men was 20-year-old Isaac Almatari. He's been charged with planning for a terrorist attack and preparing to fight for the Islamic State group in Afghanistan. In the wake of the raids, the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, wants the federal government to have the ability to stop Australians linked to terrorism overseas from returning home for up to two years. De-radicalisation expert Dr Clark Jones worked for the Australian government for 17 years. In national security and intelligence. He's now a criminologist at the ANU Research School of Psychology. He spoke to news radio's Glenn Bartholomew.
4: I think it's a uh, extremely complex issue, but I mean, firstly, how many laws do we need? I mean, over the last five or ten years, we've uh, over-securitised um, uh, Australia to the point where you know, we're starting to lose some of our freedoms that we sort of hold on to quite dearly. So you've got to ask yourself, uh, how, you know, is this new law necessary? Um, I can understand the concern of the government and and the general public about um, returning foreign fighters, and it is an extremely complex issue. But you've also got to ask yourself... um, Well, you can look at it another way. Certainly the arrest yesterday was not that we need more laws. It certainly shows you how successful our intelligence and policing arrangements are. Um, I suppose on the other side, one of the men had been through a de-radicalisation program, so you've also got to say, well, are our... uh, de-radicalisation programs um, adequate and successful and therefore maybe these laws are necessary to give ourselves more time to get our act together into relation to programs so it depends which way you look at it.
6: All right I'm glad you raised that it has been reported that yes one of them was part of a de program after returning to Australia from Lebanon last June you've worked in those programs have they had much success?
4: Well, firstly, I haven't worked in in those programs. I've certainly sort of been on the uh, periphery and uh, been able to understand them quite closely. But I have been involved in uh, uh, community-based programs and also uh, programs in overseas prisons. So. I'm um, sort of across the uh, across the issues and I'm just wondering uh, certainly um, the types of people who get involved in these programs in, in relation to the specialists that we seek out. Um, a program has got to be attractive uh, to the participants, people are going to want to participate. Um, there's got to be you know, ve- very solid, robust uh, evaluation measures put into these places and uh, oh, look, I don't want to comment from afar because I'm not actually involved in the program, but certainly uh, there's areas for improvement and um, there's a lot of... Of uh, failures of de radicalisation programs, certainly overseas. And, uh, you know, we've really got to reevaluate these programs and make them more open for external, uh, external review. At the moment, I think a lot of the programs are done under national security, and um, so it's very hard to evaluate
6: them. All right. Now, as we understand that there's about 100 Australians still involved in the conflicts in Iraq and Syria, Mr. Dutton says it is the case that people who are returning from overseas who've been inspired online, want to kill Australians. He said we just need to make sure we've got every tool available to keep Australians safe, and that he's just following the the UK model of delayed return. How are other nations dealing with this problem?
4: Well, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, I don't think there's um, any one one way, but, I mean, if you look at the threat itself, yes, it's a very real threat, but how much terrorist acts or oh, how many terrorist acts have eventuated as a result of foreign fighters. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, uh, research that could be done to examine what the real threat is. Um, whether these uh, people are a threat or not, I think we've certainly got the ability to manage them uh, quite closely, take responsibility for Australian citizens, regardless of what they've done, and put them through the, uh, put them through the courts, determine their uh, their level of guilt. I mean, if they've been in a, um, a foreign sort of exclusion zone, and therefore they have broken the law. But... I think Australia needs to take responsibility and, I've said, as I've said before, take the fuel from the fire and bring them back here and uh, and, and prosecute them if necessary. Um, and then, you know, whether they uh, manage to get through to the radicalisation program, well, that's another story.
6: There's been a bit of talk recently about whether we have got the balance right, research terror laws, with suggestions we have more such legislation than most countries. But Mr Dutton says this temporary exclusion order bill will be introduced, this bill... This, this week, rather, and that he hopes to get the support of the Parliament to see it passed. How do you see it playing out? Will Labor support it?
4: Um, I don't know. I mean, that's. that's um, I hope they're very careful or very cautious in supporting it because, as I said before, I mean, I think we're becoming over securitized and, and when those laws who – the laws often uh, appear to be focused on a, uh, one particular group and when that uh, ends up causing marginalisation and um, uh, start to break down social cohesion, then I think they're having the counterproductive and the reverse effects, so, though. I think we, you know, we need to be very cautious, not rush through anything like this. Um, I think the UK were very cautious, but then again, uh, what works in the UK doesn't necessarily work here. And we've certainly seen that with are countering violent extremism programmes. So I think the um, Labour government needs to be very, very uh, cautious in, in rushing this through, or allowing the Liberal government to rush this through.
1: And that was de-radicalisation expert Dr Clark Jones speaking to News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew. The Prime Minister Scott Morrison and opposition leader Anthony Albanese held talks this week to pave a way forward on a promised Religious Discrimination Act. Mr Morrison says he wants to introduce a bill to Parliament this year. It comes in the wake of the sacking and fundraising controversy of former Wallabies star Israel Folau, which prompted comedian Magda Zabansky to launch a campaign to raise money for terminally ill children, while denouncing causes that use faith to divide communities. Father Rod Bauer, from the Anglican parish of Gosford, is one high-profile Christian leader to Publicly support the cause. He spoke to news radio's Mandy Pressland.
3: Well, I think it's always uh, a concern when discrimination legislation is uh, really being brought in for to leverage in domestic politics. I mean, the Labour Party's being sort of uh, uh, squeezed on this one, and, and that's never good for uh, minority and marginalised groups. I think we do need to sort of take a chill pill on this and, and step back. There, there does seem to be undue haste being used here. The Law Reform Commission uh, will bring back some findings next April uh, regarding the Ruddock report. I think think we do need to wait to see uh, what comes from that. Um, But the the political process is never the best way to uh, bring about anti-discrimination legislation. I I think we need need another consultative process that actually does take some time to consider the, the, the issues.
2: There's been support for Israel Falao in the community and some concern out there around what he said. What do you say to those that want more clarity around what they can and can't say?
3: Well, again, a process, uh, I think a comprehensive process, will give us some clarity it's uh the trouble we 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 get ourselves into a you know a binary dualistic right wrong kind of situation when we start to look i think it's a uh the social commentator hugh mckay says when we when we don't trust each other we legislate and so i think a, a step back and to lay a foundation for this conversation and and that that foundation has to be that we we actually share a common humanity and we share that common humanity in a common place. Uh, and it's, we, if we start the conversation from, from that place, we'll probably end up in a, in a very different situation where it's not uh, win or lose, um, but uh, a, a, an understanding of, uh, of shared space with competing... Um, human rights issues. And the trouble we have here is we actually have competing and and contradictory human rights issues, and they're very difficult to navigate.
2: Why have you supported Magda Shabansky's campaign?
3: Well, Magda was very uh, keen to uh, offer people an alternative narrative uh, where we had that that binary thing going on where uh, Folau was either right or wrong and everyone had taken up their, their corner. Uh, and I think it was a very helpful thing that Magna did. That's why I was very keen to jump on board, was um, say, look, um, here we, are. we have some Christians and some Muslims and some Jews and some atheists and some uh, uh, gay people, and uh, really what we want to do is say we can actually work together uh, and we can work together for the good of the community. So um, 10% of the uh, For Love GoFundMe campaign is going to 2010, which looks after young LGBTI people who, when they come out, often get thrown out of the home and need legal and accommodation assistance, and then 90% goes to uh, cancer kids. And I think it was, it was an alternative narrative that we wanted to offer uh, to say that people from diverse, different faith traditions can actually work together for the good of the community uh, rather than, than dividing the community.
2: You're well known for putting up sometimes controversial billboards outside your parish. You put on one recently saying, LGBT friends, Folau is wrong, don't listen to him. Can you talk us through your thought process in coming up with this slogan?
3: Yes, well, it it is biblically and and theologically incorrect. uh, That now famous Instagram post that he put up citing um, uh, Galatians chapter 5, doesn't, there's a long list of things that uh, Paul suggests if we, you know, if we involves our, involve ourselves in, we we don't manifest the, uh, what uh, he calls the kingdom. And uh, to start with, the, that list doesn't include. Human sexuality at all. And, uh, and it's it's nothing to do with hell. It talks about the the kingdom of God, which is often and erroneously uh, misunderstood as something to do with the afterlife. It isn't. So, Falal was, um, he was theologically and biblically incorrect. Uh, on any level, uh, any scholar looking at that would uh, would say that. I preached a sermon on um, on Sunday about this, which is on, on our Facebook page, has now had almost 50,000 views. So it's uh, uh, it's a, something that people are very interested in and sort of delving into the the, the actual biblical theology around this issue of human sexuality and i think while of course there'll always be uh, differing and contradictory views about that uh, the the great weight of biblical scholarship would not agree with israel falal
2: on this and just finally father israel falal came out in defense of magda shabansky after she was targeted in online personal attacks what do you take from that
3: well, I think that's a, a very a gracious response from Israel Falal and um, uh, I, I congratulate him on that. I think that's a really important thing to, to, to actually say that abusing people uh, on, uh, on social media is, is unacceptable for anyone to do from any tradition. So I, uh, I, I welcome uh, what he said on that and I'm sure Magda does as well.
1: And that was Father Rob Bauer from the Anglican Parish of Gosford speaking to News Radio's Mandy Pressland. It's been another eventful week in Hong Kong, with anti-government protesters ransacking the Parliament building as the territory marked the 22nd anniversary of its handover from Britain to China. Demonstrators battled police armed with pepper spray and they rammed steel trolleys into the Legislative Council's building's glass windows. In another part of the city, democracy activists staged a huge march. Ex-pat Australian Stephen Hall is a law professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He spoke to News Radio's Steve Chase about the mood in the city.
7: Something has changed in the air in Hong Kong since the beginning of last month um, in the build up to the first major public demonstration on the sixth of June uh, concerning the um, the extradition bill and you will just to put it in a, in, in a slightly broader context, that massive demonstration of of about a million people on the sixth of June occurred only a couple of days after another massive demonstration marking the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uh, incident uh, in 1989. Uh, so, so what's been building over this summer is um, uh, an air of discontent and concern about what's been happening in Hong Kong uh, since the handover 22 years ago. Is it difficult to get around Hong Kong this afternoon? And do you fear things may get pretty ugly if the police move in where the demonstrators are trying to break into the Legislative Council? There are a number of MTR stations. These are like the the, the railway subway. The MTR is the the railway subway system in in Hong Kong. There are two principal MTR stations that have been closed down, uh, which are in proximity to the demonstrations that are taking place today. I imagine some of the young people in the demonstration could be some of your students. Do you fear for them? I know that some of my students are, are, are active participants, and that's not unusual. If you look at the crowds, uh, both uh, the official, both the both the at both the larger demonstrations, and also um, especially uh, at, at the at the at the smaller, more vigorous ones, uh, you'll see that they are all, almost all of them are kind of what what might be called university age. And I know that some of my own students are involved in these demonstrations. My own students uh, are law students, and uh, I've had to counsel a number of them to be careful uh, not, to get, not to do anything illegal and certainly not to get arrested, charged, and convicted of anything for the, for the sake mm. of uh, their future legal careers. Let's... Yes, but there's certainly an air of militancy and frustration that's built up among these people. Uh, one of the things that's perhaps surprising about this is that most of these students were uh, were busy being born at about the time of the handover in 1997? These guys are like 22, 23, 24, right? So what we're marking today is the 22nd anniversary of the uh, of the handover. Uh, and and but 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 many of them have been educated abroad at high school or have done undergraduate degrees abroad and have come back to Hong Kong. Um, they've received. Kind of liberal Western educations, um, and Hong Kong um, is is an interesting hybrid place. It is it is ethnically and culturally Chinese, but in terms of its what might be called its public culture, it's a Western style city. It's a city that um, experienced British colonial rule for one hundred and fifty years, and that has certainly left its mark um, on the public. The public. Culture and the politics of Hong Kong, and this is something with which the uh, post-handover administration, since since nineteen ninety seven, has has never fully been able to come to grips with the fact that there is academic freedom, that there is freedom of the press, that there is freedom of assembly. Uh, all of these things are still largely intact, although there have been attempts to restrict them. Um, they are still mostly intact, and uh, and and Hong Kong people react with. Uh, with, with what uh, uh, people on mainland, mainland China are likely to regard as surprising vigour to any attempts to curtail these freedoms and liberties.
1: And that was Stephen Hall, a law professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, speaking to news radio's Steve Chase. And finally, koalas on South Australia's Kangaroo Island could hold the key to saving declining populations of the species around Australia. Researchers from the University of Adelaide have discovered koalas on the island are free of chlamydia, which is killing the animals around the country in large numbers, especially in New South Wales and Queensland. Dr. Natasha Spate is an associate lecturer with the University of Adelaide. She spoke to News Radio's Cathy Niven
0: likely due to their history of originally coming from a chlamydia free island population in Victoria and so they've been able to maintain that chlamydia free um, status um, since um, they were moved in the 1920s Um, but this is the first time that we were able to show with a lot of confidence that that in fact was the case. So by testing um, 170 koalas that were Caught on the island, and then also looking at over thirteen thousand historical uh, clinical records, we were able to to be pretty certain that they are in fact video free, which is excellent.
6: And what does the condition actually do to koalas?
0: So uh, particularly in the um, eastern states as you say in, in New South Wales and Queensland where there's a high level of infection but then that's also fulminating in disease in those koalas It can cause conjunctivitis which can lead to blindness. Uh, also the urinary tract um, can be affected and that can cause bladder um bladder disease and kidney disease and the reproductive tract disease can lead to infertility. So quite a few body systems can be affected and, and in quite a severe way.
6: So how can the koalas on Kangaroo Island save the populations of koalas around the country then?
0: Well, in in the long term, we can consider whether there is a potential there for to establish disease-free um, mainland breeding colonies with um, Kangaroo Island koalas. Um, also, in conjunction with the um, the new chlamydial vaccine that's been developed and trialled by our colleagues in um, at the University of Sunshine Coast, um, you know that could then act to protect um, koalas of chlamydia free from becoming infected by. Um, if they're interacting interacting with other koalas that already have the disease. So, um, you know, there's a couple of measures now that are giving us some um, hope that we can get past um, the, the, the effects that this disease is having on, on koala populations.
6: And, and what if nothing is done? What might happen to the population of koalas elsewhere in the country?
0: Well, I mean, chlamydia has been identified as the... The leading disease threat to koalas, um, and so if if the koalas are continuing to become very sick with this disease, and um, and in some cases dying, in other cases having to be euthanized on welfare grounds if they've been rescued and they're just in such a severe state of disease that it's because it's very very difficult to treat um, the koalas with antibiotics it's a very long course um, and they have to be hospitalised for a long time so it's, it really is a very difficult disease to manage and treat um, and so I mean we, we've already seen the, um, the numbers of koalas dropping in the eastern states so presumably that will continue to occur
1: that was the university of adelaide's dr natasha spate speaking to news radio's kathy niven and that's all for this edition of the weekly post i'm anna pykett have a nice weekend
6: get your news now on abc news radio